Good evening. It is good to be together to worship God. Uh, beautiful song, Paradise Valley. I want that sung at my funeral. What a beautiful thought to be able to pass from this earth and walk into that Paradise Valley. If you're a guest, we're glad that you're here. I hope everybody will take your Bibles. We won't have passages on the screen tonight, so be sure and grab your Bible and be opening to 2 Timothy, the first chapter. 2 Timothy, the first chapter. And then if you uh, need to borrow a Bible that's in the pew there, I believe it'll be on page 1056. 1056. We rejoice with Katie Page that was baptized this afternoon by our grandfather, Ronnie Travis. We rejoice with the Travises, Ronnie and Tawanda, the grandparents, and then and also with Twanda, with Retta Page, who is the mother, and we rejoice with them. And then just a few, an hour before that, there was also a young man uh, that was baptized here after the second service, and his name is Jacob Butler. And uh, we rejoice with him, and his parents are Brad and Stephanie Butler, and uh, they were here with us second service this morning, and after that service, their son uh, wanted to be baptized. He had studied earlier in the week uh, with Philip, and uh, we are thankful for his decision and we rejoice with these two uh, young people and we rejoice with them, their families and, and the heavenly host and God himself. And uh, we are thankful for them. As already mentioned, uh, we are thankful for a wonderful father-daughter retreat. I mentioned this morning good memories. I know a lot of great memories were made on that retreat. And it's wonderful to have fathers and daughters be able to spend time together. And we appreciate each one that was a part of that. And, and for Clint uh, organizing that and, and leading that ministry in such a great way. We appreciate Mike Eeks and, and his leadership of the ministry that, that hosted the egg hunt yesterday. And hundreds of kids enjoyed that. And just a lot of uh, people here to enjoy being with each other. And I hope that you'll look forward to Friends Day to invite your friends, but I hope you'll look forward to it to be together as a church family. Uh, let's, let's come and enjoy worshiping God and enjoy eating together and fellowshipping together. Enjoy the activities together. Let's, let's enjoy being together. If, if, if we don't, something's wrong with us. Uh, families are to enjoy being together. Families are longing to be together. Uh, we travel miles and miles and miles to be with family. And uh, as a church family, uh, let's, let's be together. I'm not trying to just overemphasize this, but there are still cards scattered throughout the pews. And if you haven't yet filled your wallet up or your purse up, this is the week to make sure that you're prayerful, to make sure that you're inviting. And let's see who is it that we could reach out and let them know about a wonderful God and a wonderful church family. And maybe this just might be the introduction that, that they have to, to learn and, and to see what they're missing and what they can become a part of. And we pray that God receives all the glory for this and that truly good things will happen in our life, in our own soul, in our being through this and uh, in the lives of others. Tonight I want to study with you about Paul. But it relates to what we talked about this morning, where Paul wrote that the gospel that he presented, that it was all about the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. That was the core of who he was. And now tonight we're going to be reading in 2 Timothy, the first chapter. And you probably know 2 Timothy is the last writings of Paul. He is in prison. He is in a dungeon. He is waiting execution, but he is not giving up. How is it that we have such faith? How is it that such commitment could be grown, developed, matured into? 
And that's what I want to develop in my life. And I hope that's what you want to develop in your life is that kind of commitment that is focused on God and it does not fade no matter what the cost. Commitment is powerful. In difficult trials, commitment does not bend. Over long years, commitment does not tire. Through heavy pain and suffering, commitment does not give in to seek comfort. And in times of uncertainty, commitment does not waver. For if it did, it would cease to be commitment. Commitment is just that powerful. Commitment is also beautiful. It's a masterpiece, if you will. It's almost like you could personify commitment and say, commitment, I put you in your hands and what can you sculpt? What can you paint? And commitment would say, I, I could paint a beautiful, beautiful masterpiece with your life if you truly are committed to God. Go to a husband and wife as they celebrate their 50th anniversary where first they've been committed to God all through those years and they're committed to each other all through those years. And when you are there at that 50th anniversary, you're gonna see something beautiful. And really what you're seeing is the beauty of commitment in action. Go to a funeral of a saint that passes away and listen to the eulogy. And what you're gonna hear is you're gonna hear how that person touched so many lives because commitment is just that beautiful. Or go to the bedside of someone who is dying with cancer, but yet they are a faithful child of God. And look at the beauty of a peace that passes understanding in some heavy and difficult times of life. Commitment is beautiful. But I need to understand something as we begin this lesson tonight. I need to understand that that kind of commitment that is so powerful and is so beautiful doesn't begin the day before the funeral. It doesn't begin the month before the 50th anniversary. It doesn't begin the day someone is diagnosed with cancer. That kind of commitment has usually been experienced, been yielded to for years and oftentimes decades. Brethren, there is something beautiful and powerful about our brothers and sisters that have been serving God faithfully for decades. And through all the pain and all the uncertainty and all the trials, they continue to serve. They don't give in and they don't give up. And to those of us that are younger, I want you to know that we admire you. And your example is not unnoticed. And just like tonight, we study Paul, not just as an, expire, an inspired writer, but we also study him as a wonderful example of a Christian man who was older and set an example for us that surely there is so much to learn from. What does this commitment sound like when it is discussed? Look with me, if you will, 2 Timothy, the first chapter, and listen to Paul as he says in verse 12. In verse 12, for this reason, 
I also suffer. Think about commitment. For this reason, I also suffer these things. He's being held, ready to be executed. For this reason, I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed to him until that day. Oh, every phrase in here is powerful. I'd like to go to immediately to that middle phrase where he says, I know whom I have believed. Notice Paul right here doesn't say, I know the scriptures I believe in, although Paul did believe in the scriptures. He didn't say here, I know the church that I believe in, although Paul did believe in the Lord's church. But I want to remind you tonight that the core of everything that we are, if we're going to talk about scripture, if we're going to talk about the church, if we're going to talk about the family, it doesn't matter what we talk about. Everything needs to go back to its core of the resurrected Jesus. Paul says, I know whom I have believed in. He knew the resurrected Lord. And at the time of trial in his life, that's where he was finding his commitment. And you remember, it wasn't always so easy for Paul to believe in the resurrected Lord. Drop back to Acts 8th chapter. We're going to do this quickly because most of you here know this part of, of Paul's life. This was back when his name was Saul. But you remember in Acts the, second, Acts the 7th chapter, Stephen, the first Christian martyr, is being killed. They lay the coats. You remember where in 58? Verse 58 the very end of it, they lay down their clothes at the feet of the young man named Saul. We go to the eighth chapter in verse one. Now Saul was consenting to his death. We go to the eighth chapter in verse three. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. We go to the ninth chapter and it seems like he has excelled so much in persecuting Christians and destroying the church that it's almost like he says to his leaders, I've done such a good job in Jerusalem. I'm ready for new territory. Can I go on to Damascus now? And they give him a letter of permission to travel to Damascus. And look what he's going to do in verse one. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. And he asked for letters. And notice at the end, whether it be men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And then there's that bright light that shines from heaven. He falls to the ground, verse four. And he heard the voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, Paul's right just here. He said, who are you, Lord? I assure you that the answer that the Lord is about to give is not in any consideration in Paul's mind right now. He really did believe that Jesus Christ was a blasphemous man. He believed that any disciple that would say Jesus of Nazareth is the Lord is a person guilty of blasphemy. And because of Saul's love for God, he was going to stand up for God and put down anyone that would say Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. Listen, at this point, I believe that Saul believed that he was talking to God. But I can assure you, it rocked his spiritual world whenever he heard this answer right here. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. How do we know 
that he wasn't expecting this? Look at verse six. So he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what do you want me to do? At the end of his life, we just read Paul saying, for this reason I suffer. I'm not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed. And right here is the moment for Saul that his world is shaken. And he has to come to the realization, you mean to tell me Jesus of Nazareth was really the Messiah? Jesus of Nazareth is really the Christ, the glorified one? Jesus of Nazareth was God in flesh? Trembling and astonished. And this is what you have to love about Saul. Notice how good his heart was. Sure, it was horrible that he was persecuting Christians, but notice how good his heart is. Immediately, he recognizes that Jesus of Nazareth is Lord, Lord, servant. And his next words are, Master, what do you want me to do? I'm afraid that if I would have been in his shoes, I might have said something like, Jesus, you astonished me. And I'm going to have to think about this one. Can we talk again tomorrow? Isn't it amazing how immediately he was willing to obey the Lord? I know whom I have believed. When we look in scriptures, are we looking for the Lord? Are we looking for other things? In John, the fifth chapter, we have Jesus talking to Pharisees. And in John, the fifth chapter, I'd like for you to notice verse 38 and 39. And this is a convicting principle here. In John 5, 38 and 39, Jesus says, But you do not have his word abiding in you because whom he sent him you do not believe. Now you, you got what Jesus just said there. He's saying God sent Jesus and you don't believe in him. And now notice the next words in 39. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. Do you realize what Jesus was saying? You constantly search the scriptures because the scriptures are telling you about the Messiah that's coming. I am the Messiah. Look, this is in red letters here. He's saying, hello, I'm standing right in front of you. You say you search the scriptures because you want to have life? I'm the one that gives life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Something is wrong, what he's implying here. Something is wrong in the way you search the scriptures. Listen, when we study the scriptures and we don't see Jesus, we're studying the scriptures wrong. I've seen individuals hold this book up and say, this is a marriage manual. It speaks a lot about marriage. I've seen people hold this up and say this is a parenting manual. There's things said about parenting. We could go on and on. You fill in any subject you want to fill in. And brethren, I want you to understand that I need to understand this. You need to understand this. This is the gospel. It's the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. And that is the core. And yes, for any man and woman that they want to have Jesus as the core of their life, then they can read what he says about marriage. 
But the place every marriage must start is with the man and the woman submitting themselves to the resurrected Lord. It does no good to read the other things taught in this book about marriage if we're going to omit the gospel of this book. It does no good to say, I want to read all these verses that teach about parenting. If as a parent, you aren't committed to the gospel, which is this book. Or to say, oh, I want to achieve with my children, raising them to be this or to be that or to go here to do this. When the most important thing is to raise our children to love the gospel, the resurrected Lord. And we could talk about the church in the same way. If we ever disjoint the church from Christ, the living Lord, we've created a religion that is wrong, it's false. In other words, what is this book? Jesus was referring to scripture and he says, your problem is you're reading scripture, but you're not seeing the Messiah of the scripture. And how many times do we do the same thing? This morning, the whole chapter that we dealt with was a plea to believe in the resurrected Lord. Paul is facing death. Let that sink in. What's going to be on your mind when you're facing death? You know what is on his mind? It's not really a what. It's who. When he writes about facing death, he says, I know whom I have believed. What a powerful conviction. I'm just going to mention these and then we're going to go right back to our text. This morning we looked at 1 Corinthians 15th chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4. And we could ask Paul, Paul, what do you preach? And he'd say, I preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, the resurrected Lord. We could also ask Paul again, tell us about this resurrected Lord. And he would say in Galatians 2 and verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. So let's simplify that into just one statement for this sermon. First, he would say, I preach Jesus Christ, the death, burial, and the resurrection. Number two, he would say from here, I live Jesus Christ. I live my life in Christ and I want Christ living in me. And then we could back up to Ephesians, the third chapter on his prayer. In Ephesians 3, I'm going to begin reading in verse 17, which is the middle of this prayer. But notice what his prayer is, that Christ, now notice, Christ, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width, the length, the depth, and the height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Paul, what do you want? You're praying for saints. What do you want for them? I want them to love Christ. I want them first to receive his love. I want them to know the love of Christ so that then they can give that same type of love toward others. Let's go back to our analogy we were using earlier. What if a husband and wife is first and foremost committed to Christ and so they've received the love of Christ and now that's the way they love each other. What if our children first receive the love of Christ and that's the way they love their parents? And what if that's the way parents love their children? And what if that's the way we love coworkers, even the difficult ones? 
What if that's the way we love our neighbors, even those that could easily become our enemy? Paul, what do you want? Think about these three passages we just mentioned. Paul would say, I just want to preach the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. I want everybody to know the resurrected Lord. Paul, what does that look like lived out? He would say, it's living Christ. What do you mean? He says, I want to live my life in Christ and I want Christ to live in me and everything that I am. Paul, what does that look like? And he would say, I want us all to love like Christ loves us. In other words, he says, I preach Christ. I live Christ. I love Christ. What a difference that would make. What if as a church family, that's true. When you say, one of my friends, and let's just make it a brother and sister in Christ. A brother and sister came up to me the other day and, and they asked me about what should I do? What if our answer always goes back? To Christ. What's Christ's will? What about if Christ were living in you? What, what would Christ want you to do? What about the way we interacted with each other? What if we could honestly say we always love each other the way Christ loves us? Paul, what can you tell us? You're facing a, a tough chapter of your life. What can you tell us? And he would say, I know whom I have believed. Friends, our relationship with Christ must be real. It's not just intellectual. Yes, we need to learn of him in order to know him and to love him. But it must be real. I'd like for you to notice the second phrase. Let's go back there to 2 Timothy again. Look at verse First chapter still in verse 12, 2 Timothy 1 and 12, back on page 1056. The same passage, and notice we picked up in the middle there where he says, for I know whom I have believed. And I want you to notice this next phrase. And am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed. Now this is interesting that he says, I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed. Persuasion is the idea of there's something that has convinced you of this. In other words, Paul says, I've evaluated it. I've looked at it over time and I am persuaded of this. I am convinced of this. Like right now, imagine if you, you had to choose on a car lot between this car and this car and, and you, you tell the salesman, I, I don't know which one. I know I want one of these, I don't know it. And then the salesperson persuades you that this red car is a better car and so you leave and someone says, why did you pick this car? And you say, I was persuaded. What did the salesman say that persuaded you? Well, to think about Paul here. Paul, you say that you're willing to suffer. You say that you will not be ashamed. In other words, you're going to take your stand. You're going to be committed to the Lord no matter what the cost. Paul, what persuaded you to have that kind of commitment? And he would say, he is able. We talk a lot about our faithfulness, and that's good. But keep in mind, there's no reason for us to talk about our faithfulness if God is not faithful. He is able. We serve a God who is faithful to us. And what a beautiful, beautiful fact. 
Let's listen to Paul say this. Back up to Romans, the fourth chapter. I love this in Romans, the fourth chapter. What if someone came up to, to some of you that, that are nearing your 90s? I don't know how many we'd have here tonight in that category, but some of you that are nearing your 90s, what if a man came up to you and said, hey, you're going to have a child. Some of you women that they're in kind of that same age, they came up and you'd say, well, I'll tell you what, that person's not trustworthy, right? Well, it depends. If they can make it so that you can have a child, now all of a sudden, not only are they trustworthy, but you say, wow, what they say comes true. Paul is going to talk about whether or not you can trust God. And he could have gone to many illustrations. And what he did was he went to Abraham. And we're going to pick up kind of in the middle of this to save a little bit of time. But see there in Romans 4 and verse 17, as it's written, I have made you a father of many nations. This is God speaking to Abram. And he says, in the presence of him whom he believed, God, who gives life to the dead. Let that sink in. Can you trust God? He can give life to the dead. That's pretty amazing. And cause those things which do not exist as though they did. In other words, God can speak of something happening in the future and it is so certain that if God says it's going to happen, he can go ahead and speak of it in present tense. That is how certain God is. That's how faithful God is. And notice, you, you must love this phrase in verse 18. Who contrary to hope, in hope, believing. That's how Abraham described there. In other words, you look at Abram and say, Abram, you didn't really believe it when God said that you and Sarah were going to have a, a child. And he says, listen, I know that that makes no sense according to your normal pattern of thinking. But he says, when God was the one that said it, absolutely, I believed it. God said it. I believed it. And he gives a further description here that's really powerful. Let's read two or three more verses here. Verse 18, who contrary to hope, in hope, believed, so that he became the father of many nations. According to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, see, that's the key for us. He did not consider his own body already dead since he was about 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promises of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what, he, what God had promised, he was also able to perform. Look, what Paul writes about in 2 Timothy 1, 12, that's not the first time it popped in his mind. Whenever Paul says, let me tell you, I know whom I believe in and I am persuaded he is able. Paul, what would persuade you? He would say, I'll tell you one thing that persuade me is years ago, I know the great example of Abram. And I know what God promised him and God delivered on it, telling me if God says something, he is able to deliver it. Brethren, it's so important for us to read the scriptures to know how powerful God is. God is able. And you have to love in Lamentations, the third chapter, we have that book of, it's a funeral dirge that, that is for a city. And in the midst of this, what seems to be a hopeless situation, I want to read two or three verses here in Lamentations 3. You know part of these phrases because you sing them from time to time. In verse 21, this I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. Through the Lord... Through the Lord's mercies, 
We are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness or the way the Bible ends in Revelation, the 19th chapter. We have the one riding in on the white horse. And you remember his name? The one that rides in on the white horse. He shall be called faithful and true. In the Old Testament, the root word for faithful and the root word for true is the same root word. In other words, God only speaks the truth. Therefore, God is always faithful. Truth and faithfulness have the same root. Paul, you're facing a tough time. Where are you going to put your hope? I'm going to hope in the one who is faithful every time. Men will let us down. They may not always mean to, but they will. We will let our own selves down. Satan will let us down every time. God, God has never once let anyone in this room down. God is faithful. He is able. As we close this lesson, I'd like for you just to note back there in 2 Timothy 1 and 12. He says, for this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed. Why is he mentioning, mentioning the suffering and not being ashamed? Well, when you go back to verse 7, he's making a plea to the young man, Timothy. And he says, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Therefore, now I want you to be noticing the topic of suffering and shame here. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Paul's begging Timothy here, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. You see how we got to verse 12? Verse 12 didn't come about by Paul saying, hey, let me tell you about my commitment. Verse 12 came about pleading with Timothy. I know you're going to see me in prison. I know you know that I'm waiting to be executed. Please don't become ashamed of Christ. Don't become ashamed of Christ's people that are in prison. Timothy, God didn't give you the spirit of fear. He gave you power and love and a sound mind. Be willing to suffer. Never be ashamed. And the end of verse 8 that we just read, he talked about the gospel. Now, do you remember another verse that Paul spoke that talked about shame and the gospel? And power, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation, Romans 1 and 16. That's what he said to the Roman brethren. And in other words, he says the same thing to Timothy. Now, what is he not ashamed of? The gospel. Do not be ashamed of the death that is Jesus' suffering. Don't ever be ashamed of suffering for righteousness sake. Jesus wasn't ashamed to suffer for righteousness sake. Don't be ashamed of it. Why? It is in standing with Jesus 
that we are resurrected, raised up in newness of life. When we understand the power of the gospel, we understand that it's nothing to be ashamed of. And in that we find true and real commitment. Can you say tonight, I know whom I believe in. You know him. And you know you're standing with him because you've been persuaded. You've seen over and over how faithful he is. And you're ready to not only stand with him, but you're ready to even die for him. Tonight, it's the power of the resurrection that gives us hope even through suffering and death. Can I say that again? It's the power of the resurrection that gives us hope even in suffering and death. You and I won't face anything, anything that the resurrection can't conquer. Tonight, let's make sure that we have made our stand with the resurrected Lord. Tonight, if we can help you with that, if you're ready to become a child of God and be baptized into Christ as a believer, willing to repent and confess. Maybe you've begun that journey and along the way, maybe a little bit of shame has gotten in your life. Maybe a little bit of fear has moved you off course. But tonight, you're reminded of how faithful God is. And maybe tonight, you are reminded of whom you believe. If you need to pray forgiveness, repent, we'd love to help you. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to encourage you.